verses 37 through 40. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. I will read it, and you can follow along. <clears throat> and he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Lord, would you help us today to humble ourselves before your word? Would you give us, Lord, freedom to listen, to receive what it is that you have for us this morning? We thank you, Lord, for being such a great God to us. We don't deserve your goodness. We don't deserve your grace. And yet, Lord, um, you have worked in us, and you uh, desire for us to be a people that honor you and that live for your glory. You desire for this church, Lord, to reflect your truth. And I ask, Lord, now, as we humble ourselves before the preaching of your word, that you would empower uh, Pastor McNeff, Lord, with how you've prepared him and the word of God that's in his heart. Lord, would you use him mightily to help fashion and shape us to be a church that truly glorifies your name. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. John. Thank you, Rod. Well, this is a real, uh, is a real privilege to do this. I talked to someone before when we were outside a little bit and said, how often you do this? And said, Not much. <laughs> you don't get the chance to be a part of a new church very often, very, very seldom. Um, actually, the last time, last time I can remember being part of a brand new service where a church was launched was when I was a kid. My uh, parents uh, helped launch two churches in Hutchinson, Kansas, where I grew up. And uh, I can remember the church that started in the bedroom of one of my friend's houses. That's the first place I was at at that church because they had all the kids have a class in the bedroom. It was me and my brother and a friend. That was it. And um, so, so you never know what's going to happen. I was back about two or three years ago, and that church is now out of existence. And so the faithfulness of God's people there... And literally, as I remember as a kid, 12 years old, literally putting the roof on the building that we built. I can remember doing that. And I remember really being invested in that and proud of that even at that time as a kid. And yet over the years now, um, God's witness has gone out and there is no more church there. So what you're doing today, what you're observing, I trust that as our brother Dan brought this morning and Billy mentioned, the faithfulness of God's people is what he calls for. And so it's, um, it's not an automatic thing that the church is just going to flourish. Uh, we live in a world that is antagonistic to what you're doing. And um, as Billy mentioned, uh, when we walk through the door, the Lord walks with us, but we also have a, an opportunity to live in fleshly um, lives that would invite Satan into our presence by our own devices, by having to have our own way, by attacks, by... All kinds of things that happen in churches. So my prayer is that what goes on here today would continue to flourish. It's good to see a number of you that I know. Um, I've had several of you as students that have, believe it or not, endured me for four hours a night for eight weeks at a time. And so they are still living. And so uh, we trust that that's not a, not a bad sign. Some of the rest of you have known different places. So it's, uh, I feel comfortable being here. And thank you for inviting me to come. I've known Rod for probably the last year and a half or so, and I can tell you this, that the key thing in planting a church is I've been a pastor now for 37 years, uh, seen a number of, the key thing in planting a church is always the pastor. 
It's not that he's more important than anybody else, but if you don't have somebody who has a vision, has a heart, and can come and bring the word of God, um, that's the key part. That's why everything flourishes out of that. It's not just because of him. It's because under his guidance, he takes the word of God and he elevates that and he lifts that up. That's what then all of us are drawn to. That's what then God's people are coming together and say, we will all place this up under the authority of God's word. We will respond to God's word. That then begins to elicit the gift of teaching and responsibility in other people's hearts. You raise up other leaders. Other leaders begin to adapt themselves to the word of God. And the word of God is that which then empowers people to be all that God would desire them to be. So it's been a privilege to have Rod, um, Rod and Ilya with our staff retreat last May. So they came and they got to see how goofy we are as a staff. And it was a real privilege to have them there. I've met their, their family. And then um, Rod has been attending our staff meetings for the last, uh, what, six months? Five, six months? Something like that. And so he's not just an attendee. It's a real pleasure to have somebody with a seasoned background uh, behind him and contributes to our discussions. And we love having that discussion with Rod. So um, you're privileged to be a church that starts with such good leadership. I know some of the rest of your leaders. And uh, so I have all kinds of hope and uh, uh, aspirations for user group. And so this is a great place to be. And I uh, trust that God will reward you for this. Now, if you uh, will turn to the passage we looked at today. <clears throat> Anytime you gather together, uh, the gathering of the church is to be um, several things. Book of Acts forms a passage for another sermon maybe, but it says that they were, the early church was devoted to four things. And the first thing is the thing we're going to be devoted to for the next few minutes here. It says the first church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, I have nothing for you this morning. I have absolutely nothing for you. But God's word does. And so as we come to God's word, that's the thing that we're devoted. The disciples are devoted to the apostles' teaching. It says to fellowship, which is what you just did outside. Trust that will continue. To the breaking of bread, I think that's one thing we're going to talk about today. It was basically worship and then to prayer. So if you want four things to devote yourself to, this is the beginning of one of those. And um, that passage helps us understand that. But I want to take a little different direction today. Now, when Ron asked me if I would do this, I kind of thought a little bit. And I thought I know exactly what I want to do. And so I picked this passage because I want to do something called Worship, Walk, and Witness. Those happen to be the three characterizations of our church that we have searched over the years and said if there's three things we call our people to be, not do. You have to be before you can do. If you are not what these passages call, what you do will all be in your own flesh. It will all be in your own merit. And so God's people need to be these things first. And so I want to direct our attention to this passage for any um, that happened to be in our church last week. Sorry, Eric. This just happened to be the message that also preached in our church last week. Now, I've been in our church for 17 years, and I've never preached any sermon twice. And uh, so Eric will have a hard time believing me today. So he's heard this before. If any of you happen to be there last week, this is the same message. So he's the only person who has an excuse to fall asleep. But he won't do that. He won't do that. He's had a lot of coffee. He's juiced up. 
Now, let me, uh, let me just direct our attention to this passage. And um, let me begin with a little story, something I read a couple of weeks ago. Some of you may be football fans. Pro Football Hall of Fame had their induction to the Hall of Fame about, I think it's the latter part of July. At that time, there was a man inducted into the Hall of Fame. I read the account of this and it said he gave one of the most inspiring speeches in the 49 years that they've been inducting people into the, into the Hall of Fame. And uh, it was Shannon Sharp who played for the, I think he played for the Broncos and he ended up playing for the Ravens. His speech evidently really caught people's attention because it gave so much deference to his grandmother. He talked much about what it meant to have his grandmother raise he and his two siblings and they, she raised them in poverty. And as he began to give the speech, he talked a lot about uh, burlap sheets as a child, talked about being in, in homes and apartments that had leaky roofs, and he talked about her dedication and really drove him to be the very best that he could be. And that was probably the admirable part of the speech, but as I read on, the last half of the speech just turned my heart a whole different direction. Because in that speech, <coughs> He talked about broken promises and the torn relationships that he had with his own family, with his own children. And he said this, he said, I didn't want my kids to live one hour in the life that I had, let alone a day, and I neglected my kids. I missed recitals. I missed football practice. I missed graduations. I'm so obsessed with being the best player I could possibly be that I neglected a lot of people. I ruined a lot of relationships. But I'm not here to apologize for that because it got me here. And it got them to a life that, never would have been, that they never would have enjoyed had it not been for that. You see what he's saying? He's saying the things that I got you are really the most important thing in life. But then he ended like this, talking to his kids. He says, thank you for making all those sacrifices so other kids other kids didn't have to make so your dad could live out his dream. Let me suggest that was possibly a good speech. That's a lousy life. That's just not a life that you would want to live. Say, well, I accomplished what I want to, and everybody else around me had to spin around, and, and I ruined relationships. I, I left my family in tatters, and I want to thank them for allowing me to fulfill my dream. That's not a noble way to live. And I want to give you this morning as a church, hopefully give a different perspective, hopefully have a, have a shot at seeing what does God call us to to live. Is there anything wrong with being a professional athlete? No. Is there anything wrong with doing the very best that you can in our jobs? Absolutely not. But if any of those things call us to something different than what this passage says for us, I suggest it's going to be a secondary goal in life. Here's what God calls us to. I'm going to suggest in this passage, first of all, it calls us to the ultimate priority, which is basically worship. So you look at this passage <coughs> in um, Matthew 22, and Rod read just a few verses I want to focus on, but as you know, when you study Scripture, there's a context that goes on behind the scenes. And if you will, put yourself in first century Jerusalem, and I want you to imagine, if you will, that there's a Jewish law firm there, let's call it Maccabean Moskowitz, okay, you whatever you want to. But that's kind of what was going on. <clears throat> and they wanted to take one of their brightest and best, and they wanted to go and examine the credentials and the, the life of, of, a, of a young, t 
teacher there in Jerusalem who was usurping their authority. He's moving in on their turf. And not only that, but people saying he's one of the greatest teachers they'd ever heard. And so in the sense that you can imagine, people get a little jealous and say, what do you mean? And so they sent some of their brightest and best out to examine this man. And the way they did it, they basically said to him, we're going to put him on the spot. We know that that's what they were going to do because in verse 15 it says, and the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his walk. So here you have these legal experts coming to Jesus and they, they proceed to ask him three questions trying to entangle him. The first question they ask him is in verse 15. It says, listen, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus answered that very clearly. He said, let me, anybody have a coin? Somebody reaches into his pocket and his toga and pulls out a coin and says, whose picture's on it? He said, uh, Caesar. He said, fine. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God that which belongs to God. Very simple answer. By the way, same answer we should obey today. That's why we love April 15th, right? Yeah, not, mu- not much enthusiasm. But that's the same principle. Give, give to the government what belongs to them and give to God that which belongs to God. Then they came to ask a second question. There's another group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were a group, Pharisees and Sadducees were both part of a larger group called the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees, they had a little different twist. They did not believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in any books in the Old Testament outside of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. as all they believed in. And, and they were really at each other's throats a lot of times. But here the Sadducees come and said, well, let us take a shot at it. So they came in verse 23. They asked him another question. And they came and they said this. They basically explained that there, were, there was a man who had a wife and he died. And when he died, he passed his wife on according to Leverite law in the Old Testament. If a man dies, his wife passes to his brother. And they proceed to say that man died and went through seven men who died. And that wife was passed from every single one of them all the way down the very end. And then that man died. And then the question was, you can, almost, you can just sense a smirk on their face. So, Jesus, great teacher that you are, whose wife will she be in heaven? Kind of the attitude. Picture all the way through that. Jesus does something right off the bat that I think surprised them. Jesus basically told them, listen guys, said, you don't know the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. So he wasn't impressed with their little charade that they're carrying on there. And then he answered them from the Pentateuch, from the book of Exodus, from the only section of scripture that they had narrowly said that they would accept. Jesus went back to Exodus 36 and read this. said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus said, then he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So if God says he is the God of these men who they knew were dead, and yet he's still the God of those men, that must mean to some extent they were still living. Therefore, the resurrection in some sense is very real. It says they were astonished. Okay, we don't want to spend our time there. So then it comes to the third question. That's the one we want to deal with. I just want you to see what they are doing and how Jesus is responding. So then the third question comes in verse 34. It says, a lawyer. Now, I'm not going to ask if there are any lawyers here, but whenever a lawyer shows up, you, you better start looking at your pocketbook and everything else. That's kind of the same way it is, so we're not trying to 
defend our lawyer friends. But here a lawyer steps up. He's a scribe. These are the guys that are responsible for writing down Scripture, copying to make sure that it was accurate, and they were also the experts in Mosaic law. I pictured that this guy was probably the senior partner in this firm. And I picture he's the guy that had been designated, okay, you're the litigator, you're the guy that's got all the background, you go and you trip him up and you put this guy out of our misery forever. You expose him. So that's what he's trying to do. So this man comes and basically asks Jesus, so, which is the greatest commandment of all? Now, on one hand, fairly easy, but we must understand this. This man was part of a group, especially the scribes and the Pharisees are usually mentioned together. He was part of a group that believed that there were 613 various laws that had not been written down in the Old Testament that we are governed by. 613, because why? Because there are 613 letters in the Hebrew placement of the Ten Commandments. 613, because there are 613 separate laws in the Pentateuch. And they'd taken those laws and they had debated those for years. These are not written down. They're just, you know, over the years, these had developed by the rabbis. They divided them into 248 affirmative laws, and they said there are 248 affirmative laws because there's 248 parts of your body. I have no idea. I've tried to reinvent what's the connection. I don't know, but that's what they said. And then there were another group that were called, there were another group of 365 negative laws, one law for every day of the week. That's a whole captured whole of 613 laws. They were not only positive and negative, but they had this debate on which ones were heavy and which ones were light. And that had been going on for literally hundreds of years. They not only had never written them down, they memorized them, they had, and they always had these debates about which ones are really heavy that you really have to obey and which ones were light. So when he comes to ask which one is the greatest, Jesus doesn't have a chance of answering that question to satisfy him. Because no matter what Jesus says, he knows that th this Pharisee knows there'll be somebody that will contest and say, well, no, you haven't really considered this and that. So no matter what he said, he's a loser from the very beginning. That's what they're trying to do. And I suggest to some extent that represents what goes on in our culture. People want to know what's the most important thing to live by. What's your, wh what, how should you navigate life? What's your North Star? What's the most important things in your life? And you can go to the self-help bookstore. You can go to your friends, my friends, neighbors. You can find all kinds of things to answer that question. So the same question is being asked today. But Jesus answered the question this way. He again takes it from the Old Testament. Verse 37, this passage we begin to read. He said this. Here's his answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In the passage in Luke, he also adds, with your strength. <clears throat> That's the very essence of the first answer Jesus said. If you want to know the most important thing, if you want to know the thing that the way that you arrange your life, here it is. I suggest that as you begin your journeys at church, there's nothing more important than you can do to, than to do that. That's where God would have you. That's the instruction of Jesus, not only for then, but in these eternal values that he gives to us that pass not only just through the pages of time, but 
through the pages of culture. Remember, Jesus spoke a different language here. But as God personified, he's not speaking just to the Jewish people. He's not speaking just to Pharisees. Being God in the flesh, this is God's law for all people, for all mankind, for all time. So it comes down to us, I believe, as God's laws, God's instruction, what's the most important thing I can do in my life? Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's not hard to picture if you break them down. Heart has to do with our emotion. Soul has to do with our spiritual side of who we are. Mind has to do with our intellect. Basically what he's saying, you can go and get a college degree, you can get a master's degree, you can get a PhD, you can get two PhDs. And you're not going to get this. You're not going to get this is the most important thing in life. But that's what Jesus says. Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and Luke adds, and your strength. Everything you have. That's not a new commandment. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, it says this, and now Israel, Deuteronomy 10, chapter 10, verse 12, says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? That's why I suggest that when you see those words fleshed out like this, that's really the essence of worship. God calls us, first of all, to be worshipers. He calls us, first of all, to be men and women that bow before him, understand everything that we can, and get some kind of an inkling about who he is, respond to him, and worship him. This is your launch date in a new church. Could be a lot of things... I could be doing, could be telling you how to penetrate the community, how to draw people, could be doing the, all different kinds of things. But this is most important. This is the vital part of God's people. This is it. Again, we, we don't, we're not to worry about doing something. We understand what we are to be. And you see that all the way through the Old Testament. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, if you want to look this up, this is a, an interesting one. Remember... Solomon is the one that wrote Ecclesiastes. Solomon, some people say, was the wisest man that ever lived. Um, various reasons that you might question that, but he wanted wisdom. God gave him wisdom. The book of Ecclesiastes is a story about Solomon trying everything he could to find happiness. He tried everything. He tried power. He tried education, intellect. He tried leisure. He tried drinking and drugs. He tried partying. He tried women. He tried everything you can imagine. The first 12 chapters goes through the whole thing. He says, I did this, I did this. I gave myself fully to this. I pursued this. I did the party scene. I did the intellectual scene. I did the power scene. I did the government scene. Here's a man with that rare opportunity to try every, anything and everything that he wanted to bring happiness. That was Solomon. When you get to the end of it in chapter 12, he said this. He repeatedly said, you remember one of the theme verses that goes all the way through Ecclesiastes? Is what? Vanity of vanity. He said, Everything, it's wind. It's all a waste. You think it's going to bring meaning. You try this and you get to the end of it and you say, is that all there is? Solomon tried it all. And then in chapter 12, verse 11, he says this. Listen. 
The words of the wise are like goads. A goad was just, it was a stick that they used to prod cattle with. When I was a kid, born on a farm in Nebraska, my dad had a goad. Now they use electric ones. They're big, long tubes, and they have batteries all in the tube, and they use them to prod cattle and hogs. So they give them a little buzz. That prods you along. It would be an excellent tool for parents, but it probably would be against the law, so we probably will not ever see that. But that's, that's, that's what, it's a goad. So here's the kids, Mom, you really wouldn't do that, would you? hope not. But here's what he says. The words of the wise are like a goad. It's going to stick you. It's going to prod you. And then he gives another illustration. He says, and they are like nails firmly fixed. So it's like taking a big 16-penny nail and hammering it in on your project to make sure it holds together. That's what wisdom is like. And here's the wisdom. He said, listen, if you want to listen to it, if you want the summation of all that I've done, all that I've experienced, here it is, if you want to listen. The apex of life for Solomon is in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 12. Here's what he says. My son, remind you of the words that you hear in Proverbs, right? How often do you hear that? You that are younger need to listen to this. My son, listen to this. this it's a rare thing. Young people, listen to this. It's a rare thing that a young man or young woman desires and looks for advice and counsel. It's rare. But I think I can demonstrate that anybody that's achieved anything somewhere in life has somewhere been mentored, looked for counsel, asked other people, what do you think about this? Including relationships. Looking for wisdom. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these things. He said, of making many books, there's no end. And much studies, awareness of the flesh. The end of the matter then is this. Here it is. Of all his study, here it is. Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. That's everything. Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's from the wisest man that some people say ever lived. Someone all up that way. This kind of devotion to God is the ultimate priority of man. And I want us to understand when we talk about this, especially when we talk about worship, I want us to see what it's not connected to. Most of the times, if I would use the word worship, if we did a word association and I say worship, I'm going to bet most people would think the first word out of their mind would be music. Do you know that worship is hardly ever associated with music in Scripture? Now, there's a place for that, and I'll come back to that in a bit, but worship, first of all, has nothing to do with music. If you don't worship before you come here, you will never worship when you are here. You just won't. You might react to the music and good words, but you won't worship. Worship happens in your heart before you ever show up here. Let me give you a couple of places. Look back in Genesis. Let me just walk you through a couple. Go back to Genesis 22. First place in the Bible that the word worship is ever mentioned. By the way, a little background on the word in the Old Testament as well is the New Testament. They're different words. Obviously, one is Hebrew, one is Greek. In the old, but they both mean the same thing. The word for worship means to bow down. In fact, there's the New Testament word. It has a word that 
it has it's it's like it kind of a funny sounding thing but it basically means kiss the hand toward it has the idea it's like a king if somebody comes and oftentimes that's what would be you'd have to do somebody put their hand forward the sovereign of the king would place and the person would come and bow down in front of them and kiss their ring that's worship so worship if you want a bodily position for worship it's always like this always bowing down before God that's what you see happening here in Genesis 22 you remember the passage possibly Genesis 22 is the passage where God has told Abraham to take his son and sacrifice him now remember how many sons did Abraham have at this time he had Ishmael but from his wife Sarah he had one God told him I'm going to make a great nation out of you he, he came from what is modern day Iraq get up leave your family go to a place I'm going to show you and I'm going to make you view a great nation uh, well one problem I don't have any kids uh, well second problem I'm like 75 years old uh, well like third problem 15 years later now I'm 100 25 years later uh, fourth problem my wife is also 100 uh, fifth problem you hear her laughing I, I mean, let's get real. That's what we're going to, you got to be kidding me. We're 100 years old. We're going to have kids? Yes. Have a son. Isaac. 13 years later. That, that one I told you I was going to give to you and your wife. I want you to take him out the mount. I want you to sacrifice him. 22, chapter 22, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, to his servants, said, Stay here with the donkey. Now watch what happens. I and the boy will go over there and worship. Over where? We're going to go over to where the altars are made and we're going to worship. And that, uh, that's, that's astounding. We're going to go over there and we're going to bow down before God. And what am I going to do when I'm going to bow down before I'm going to bow down before God and I'm going to sacrifice my son. That's what worship means. Worship to Abraham, first place ever used in the Bible, meant strapping his 13-year-old son to an offering and being willing to sacrifice him. Why? Because he trusted God. Now, you can look at this. Scholars have looked at that through the years and said, well, did he know that God was going to deliver him beforehand or did he know that he would give another sacrifice before would he know that he would sacrifice his son and raise him from the dead we don't know but he was willing to do it and you remember the story he did he went and raised the knife and God says you'll see there's a bull there in the thicket going to get that's what I wanted to see your heart Abraham for our purposes to see that's worship that's loving the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength we are to protect our children and lead and guide and love them and I don't, I'm not at all saying that God would ever take us to this place, but God took Abraham to this place, and he was willing to respond that way. Go over just a few pages to Genesis 24. I'm not going to read the whole passage here. Later on, Abraham wants his son to marry well. And by the way, he says, I don't want my son to marry among the Canaanites. There's all kinds of other applications of that we're not going to, go into that but marrying well is one of the key factors in life outside of loving the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength this man like all of us as parents want our children to marry well 
The Canaanites worship foreign gods. The Canaanite basically even have their children pass through the fire to sacrifice their children live. I don't want I don't want my son to marry among that. That's why you that are young need to understand and need to look for wisdom and pray and trust and ask God to bring you a husband, bring you a wife that will honor the Lord God with you because in that relationship of intimacy and marriage, there's no more important thing than doing that together. That's a little side issue, but I think that's working there. So he says, basically, I want you to go in this far place, my hometown. I want you to go back there. And he says he wants him to do that, and so he does. He goes 500 miles across the desert sand into Mesopotamia to the place that was the, the place where Abraham had come from. Now remember, no, off sign, off, you know, no signs on the freeway telling you where to get, get off. No city maps. He goes. He knows this kind of the area. He gets off the, the road there, and he stops. Well, this is, this is it. And he looks and I said, God, how am I going to do this? And he prays to the Lord and said, Lord, I want to find a woman for the, to be the wife of my master's son. And evidently, this servant was a man, servant was a man who really honored God. In verse six, or 14 and 15, he's praying that prayer. Look in verse 15. Before he finished speaking, by the way, he prayed, I shouldn't mention this, he prayed and said, God, would you leave me to the woman, the woman that comes and, and, and asks if she can give me a drink and then asks, uh, and then I say, will you water my camels also and she's willing to do that? That's the woman. So that's the sign he put out. Before he was finished praying, it says Elizabeth shows up. Beautiful young woman. And basically, that's what happened. She came and said, you, would you like a drink? He said, yeah, I'd like a drink. And she says, can I water your camels also? So, young man, that is a key sign in looking for a wife. If she'll water your camels also, you've got a winner. So look for that, and you'll, you'll know what, what you've got. So that's what this woman did. And then you look down at the end of the passage. Look in verse 26, and it says, The young man then bowed his head and worshipped. Why did he worship? Because he'd seen God. He'd seen him work. He'd prayed and he'd asked God. And God just wasn't a, some kind of a theory out there. God was someone that was real. It was someone that he knew had supplied his need. We will never be worshipers until we're in the same place this servant was. Asking God. Loving him enough to trust him. Praying to him, seeing him supply. We ask accordance with his will, he will do that. Exodus 33, another place in chapter Exodus 33, verse 10. So when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, when Moses would talk with God, it would almost be like when he would talk with God, there'd be a huge pillar of fire that would come and post itself outside. It was almost like God is in. And they would know that God was there. And they worshipped because they saw God. Second Chronicles 7, when the temple was dedicated, they worshipped God. They bowed down with their faces to the ground because they saw God show up. Worship is responding to God's character and his work. When we see God, when we understand who he is, and we begin to experience him working in our own lives, it causes a sense of worship. There's a sense of awe associated with that. that. That music just leads us to respond to that, but if that isn't happening, 
If you're not a group of people that individually and collectively worship the Lord your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it won't matter what goes on here. There'll just be a bunch of noise floating through this room. You can might as well go to the Elks Club or to the YMCA or whatever else. But this is supposed to be different. As a people of God, we're called to worship Him. When that happens, when there's a passion to do that, when we not only see who He is in Scripture, we begin to experience Him in our lives, then you won't have people that go through time, well, I'm kind of a little spiritually dead right now. It's a little dry in my life. You cannot worship God and be dry in your life. You just can't. John Piper wrote a book called The Hidden Smile of God. He says this, If the Christian life has become the path of ease and fun in the modern West, then corporate worship is the place of increasing entertainment. Because why? Because most people, most churches associate worship with music. Again, there's nothing wrong with music. The basic thing I loved about the music Ilya led in this morning is that it was textually, it said something. It, that's what music is to do, is to teach. And that's what it does. We hear the words, we experience God, we come in and it puts the heart and the head together. That's what worship is to be. So it goes on in this, in this quote by Piper. He says, the problem is not a battle between contemporary worship music and hymns. Listen to this. The problem is that there are not enough martyrs during the week. His end of the quote's a little dated, but some of the older would get this. He said, if no soldiers are perishing, then what you want on Sunday is Bob Hope and some pretty girls, not the army chaplain and the surgeon. In other words, if you're not experiencing God during the week, or you want somebody to come and titillate you by giving you the kind of music you want up front, that's not worship. So worship is the first calling of God. I'm just going to, since I'm not going to take the time to do this day, say that it also has a musical side. If you want to go through and look in 1 Chronicles 23, verse 5, there it says that there are 4,000 instrumentalists that led the worship in the temple. You can go to 1 Chronicles 25, 7, it says there were 2,288 trained singers leading worship. And then in 2 Chronicles 5, when it came to dedicate the temple, God was so pleased with that that the glory of God came and just filled the whole temple. So yes, there's a connection. But if we don't worship God first, we'll never worship God here. I, I think I could almost stop right there and say if there's anything that I would pray and ask for you as a church to be, that would be it. Everything else will flow from that. If you're men who are worshipers, if you're men and women who perceive God, understand how he's revealed in Scripture and stand back and awe what you see revealed and then begin to see and experience and ask for and experience God's working in your life, believe me, this church will be alive with the Holy Spirit. If you do not do that, if you do not do that, then close the doors and go home because you're doing nothing different here than what anybody else is going to do in any other gathering around the community. Nothing. So I ask you to be men and women who will love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the first call to God's people is to do that. But now, look on. Now I'm back in Matthew. There's another side to this. He says, it's almost like Jesus said, well, I'll give you a freebie. 
You ask for one of the great commandments, I'll give you that. But now let me give you a second one. He didn't ask for it, but he says, I'm going to give it to you. He says, the second is just like it. I gave you the first one, the second's just like it, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbors yourself. If, if loving God is hard, I say this is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's impossible. Because we are not made to be lovers of our neighbors. There's just something natural about all of us that holds our own ethos, our own, we're self-centered. We're born into this world. Little children, one of the first words they learn is what? Mine. And we continue that into our adulthood. Mine. Everything about the media tells you to honor yourself before everybody else. After all, as the hair commercial says, you're worth it. Jesus says, second commandment is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you want a parallel passage, just write down. Now, you probably know this, but Luke 27 is the parallel passage that really fleshes this out because it says there that this managing partner in the law firm with still the smirk on his mouth said, well, let me ask you then, who is my neighbor? Because they had defined it in a very narrow sense. They had defined neighbor as people that are like me in my own immediate community. They didn't even define neighbors, people in your own extended family, your own extended clan. They didn't even define it that way. So basically what they were saying is I, all I have to do is love people who love me. It's not Jesus' way. If you love people who love just you, and that's all you love, then you're not fulfilling the second commandment. And if this is a church that's made up of people who will not love their neighbor then again, you might as well close the doors and go home. Jesus says, love your neighbors yourself. Neighbors are people who cross all kinds of barriers. Neighbors are men and women who cross cultural barriers. First of all, in the Bible, they were, they were men and women who crossed language barriers and cultural barriers and social barriers and economic barriers and race barriers. If those barriers are not crossed, then we are not being what God has called us to be. And the reason is because Jesus is the first one that crossed the ultimate barrier and came to us. What's the ultimate barrier of every one of us? We're self-centered, and if we live in our sin, and Jesus had never crossed that barrier to come and rescue us from our sin, we would never be saved. The Bible says in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And if he had never done that, if he had waited till we got ourselves cleaned up, he would have never come and died for us. But he didn't do it. Let me give you just a couple of areas where that works. The first area that loving your neighbor has an application is in the home. Very first one. We all can't help it. We're born into a home. Sorry, that's the way it is. Um, you're born with a mother and father. I realize that... that some of us have come from homes where maybe you didn't know your mom. Maybe you didn't even know your dad. But as the most part, people are born into a home where they know their mom and dad, or at least one. But it's in that context that fleshing this out becomes the hardest. Why? Because you cannot fake Christianity at home. 
They know you. They've got your number. You can come to church and you can smile and you can put on the face and you can even read the Bible and you can carry it around and you can have everybody else think that you've got this wired. But at home, they know you. They've got you wired. And the, the danger is that, that we fail to understand that even in human relationships that we're wired for failure from the very beginning. Genesis 3 tells us that. Genesis 3, the curse came to man. It was what? To man is that, that he has to go to work. And you look at the curse to the woman in Genesis 3 and then in Genesis 4, the curse for the woman is she tries to usurp authority of her man in her, in her home. That's the curse of the woman. It's been that way from the time of Adam and Eve. Men and women are different. Anybody notice that? We're wired different. Just look at little boys and little girls. Little boys get a little Tonka truck and start beating each other over the head with it. That's just the way it is. We grow up, we're different. Men read articles like, how to improve your gas mileage. Women read articles like, how to improve your relationships. And they give it to their husband and say, here, would you like to read this article? And he goes, I, why? Men subscribe to Motor Trend and Field and Stream. Women read Home and Garden and Decorating Your Home. Women talk. Men grunt. Uh. What do you want for dinner? Uh. You want chicken or beef? Uh. We're just different. We're just different. I love Mike Mason and almost anything he writes. He wrote a book called Mystery of Marriage. Listen to these words. He says, the person we love is inevitably a cross. As well as being a helper in the caring of our own Christ. Why must this be so? Simply because it's impossible to love anyone without seeing intimately into the tragedy of their lives. And everything that we see becomes a weight of grief in us. To love is not to view someone as being the most powerful person in the world or to think of them as a saint. On the contrary, it may mean to see them as we come to see ourselves, even as the chief of sinners. It is to see all their weaknesses, all their falseness and shoddiness, to have all their very worst habits exposed, and then be enabled by the pure grace of God not only to accept them, but to accept them in a deeper way than was ever possible before. Love works for two people, in other words, the way faith works for one. For faith always begins with a frank recognition of my own sinfulness that comes out in repentance, which paradoxically opens up the way for a deeper self-acceptance through forgiveness. Similarly, before love can really begin to be loved, here's the apex of what he's saying. Listen to this. It must face and forgive the very worst in the person loved. It must face and forgive the very worst in the person loved. You that are married know that. You know what that's like to live someone that knows you inside out. It's like they've crawled inside your skin and they know who you are. They know what makes you tick. Sometimes even better than we know ourselves. That makes us uncomfortable. I don't like my wife to know everything about me. But she does. This summer I've been involved in four crisis counseling marriages. Three of them in our church. One outside. They, they are 
incredibly draining, incredibly time-consuming. All of them, I married one of the couples, all of them sometime, somewhere, stood before a pastor and their fans named friends and pledged to love each other till death parted them. Every single one of them. None of them has a biblical cause for divorce. None of them. They've instead let something begin to build up inside them like a, like a piece of sand does in an oyster. And then it begins to get more and more grows around it and that becomes a pearl and they don't see that sometimes that irritation can grow to become something beautiful if they will understand that that's what it means to recognize and forgive the weakness in somebody else that can be a more beautiful expression of love but instead they don't it becomes that grain of sand that just irritates and they build on it and they begin to hammer each other with it and then what you do you begin to build reasons and one person begins to look for a way out and the other person doesn't even know it and first thing you know they're separating the love and intimacy they one hand isn't shared by two people at all why they're not loving their neighbor So God calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. And if we don't, in this way, the very most important way, this church will not be what it's called to be. Marriages are going to struggle. But I suggest the church is the place to help us understand what we do when we come to those places of struggle. The church is the place where we can find repentance, confession, forgiveness, all of that. The second area that this will be applied is in the church. I have to close here real quickly. The church is where the love of Christ is first practiced. Let me just suggest this. Most of us have a flippant view about the church. Please don't develop a flippant view about what you do here. This is the most important thing that anybody can do in the universe. It's what you're doing right now, gathering as a church. It really is. That's God's view. God says the kings and the princes, presidents and potentates and everybody else someday said when he's finished with them, they'll pass out the world scene. What you do here is really what changes cultures, what changes lives. Because you have, the, you have the person of Jesus Christ living in you, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, and that's what changes. So don't have a flippant view about this church. Support this church. Encourage people in this church. Attend this church. Be a member of this church. Be devoted to this church. Don't jump from church to church. The church is the bride of Christ. You ever seen an ugly bride? If you have, don't ever tell anybody. <laughs> don't ever mention it. The, the church is the bride of Christ. Why do we treat it so flippantly in our culture? This is the group for whom Christ died. And you treat the church as you would a beautiful bride. Expecting, is she, is she all that she will be? No. She'll grow. You're not all that you will be, but she'll grow. You're made up of imperfect people. If you don't want to be a church made up of imperfect people, then leave. Because you're imperfect. Somebody's going to have to put up with your flaws. Somebody's going to have to put up with your imperfections. But if you want a place where you can grow and learn and be a part of a imperfect group of people living and learning and growing together, I believe this will be a place that will do that. I know some of your leaders. I know Rod. I know that's what they desire, and I believe this will be a place that will happen. 
don't have time for the last one. They simply say this. Jesus said, everything in the world depends upon that. Everything. He said, all the law and the prophets depends on you doing those two things. That's quite a statement. It's quite a statement. Everything depends on that. Several weeks ago, my wife and I had occasion to be in Texas. I went to a place in Dallas I've always wanted to go, the six-floor depository book room where John Kennedy was shot from. I read about that and studied that, and you go to the top there in the sixth floor and you see where Oswald was and shot right down and took the life of our president. And it just brought back all the memories of that. I was in junior high when that happened. And, you know, you list through the tragedy of this loss of this life of our president. And it makes you think, you know, what did he die for? Now we have the advantage of looking almost 50 years later and say what's happened in our culture. Can I just say this without trying to be disrespectful to JFK? Can I say this? JFK's tragic death evidenced the fact he didn't die for anybody. Jesus did. Jesus did. As great an effect as the tragic death of JFK was, does not eradicate sin for anybody's life. Jesus' life did. If you don't know Christ, if this is a whole new thing for you, if, if being a part of a church is something that's foreign to you because you've really never embraced the person of Jesus Christ, you need to know this. You know, first of all, the Bible says we're all born in this world with a sinful heart, darkened before God. The Bible says we're, we're hopeless and we're helpless. It says that we're born in our trespasses and sin. That's everybody. But the good news to that is that there's a solution. The good news is that Jesus is God. He came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died an unjust death, went through six individual trials, all of whom were unjust, three by the Romans, three by the Jews, went to the cross. Nobody forced him to go. Great debate on who killed Jesus. Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Was it us? It's none of those. Jesus says six times in the book of John, I laid down my life. It was his choice. Why did he do it? He did it for you. The single most important transaction you'll ever make in your life is understand your sinful nature, understand a righteous, holy God that you cannot be associated with in any other way, but know that Jesus came to bridge that gap and he came to bring salvation to you. The Bible says if you believe that in your heart and you confess his name knowing that he died for your sins, the Bible says you'll be wonderfully, marvelously, incredibly, forever saved. Those saved people are the people that make up the church. Those saved people are the ones that make up Gateway. So I trust that that's the first place you've come to. And if you're not, Rod and some of the leaders, Matt and Ed and some of the other ones, Albert, they would love to talk with you. They'd love to be a people that would talk to you about what it means to be saved. Saved people will do this. Saved people will worship God. Saved people will love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They just will. They just do. And then they'll love other people as themselves. And everything you do depends upon those two commandments. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would enliven every single one of us who know you to live this way and to 
not just market the truth of the gospel, but, Father, to demonstrate all that you have to do for us. Father, for those that are not sure, I pray that you would elicit in their hearts a, a firm desire to know that they are not sure. And then to help them bring them to the place, Father, draw them to yourself so that they would know it, their, their sense of dependency upon you cannot be meant in any other way than running to the cross and embracing the cross of Jesus Christ, Father, so that they can enter into this not just eternal life, but enter into this relationship that models how you want them to live and to grow. We pray these things in your name.